So again, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 8, 8 to 13. Failed to mark in my own Bible. If you're getting one of those Bibles, it's on page 576. Can make it a little easier for you? And, all right. I've got it. I hope you do. Uh, let's read. Uh, this is God's Word. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. A deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't just have to guess or make up what the qualifications for these offices are, that you've given us them in your word. Now, Lord, I pray that as we unpack these together, that you, Holy Spirit, would move powerfully in me and in them for our good, for the good of this church. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want, I want you to think as we begin about jobs you've inter- interviewed for. Okay, so jobs you've interviewed for throughout your life. Often, weren't you given like a list of, of the job description? Here's what your roles would be. And then qualifications. Is that pretty standard? Am I got those most every job I ever applied for? Right? Here's what we're expecting you to do. And then here are the qualifications that we expect you to have coming in the door. It might look like a past work experience in the field. Have you done this before? How many years of experience do you have? Um, technical skills. Uh, so, I was in um, IT, and so software expertise. What software packages are you proficient in? Uh, management ability. Uh, past experience supervising employees. They want to know about that often. Educational requirements. Um, professional certifications. Or what certifications do you have? The primary focus seemed to always be, at least for me, and think for yourself, was on competencies. How are you competent? Are you competent enough to do this job? How many were ever about character? I don't, I've, I've applied for a lot of jobs. I don't remember any of them that said anything about character. Can you? Did they ever ask you about your character? Isn't that odd? Almost no, it's always about competencies. So this is really important because as we come to the scriptures and we're looking at deacons, we just naturally think like we do everywhere else. Well, what competencies, what, what's he going to be doing? And so does he have work experience? So deacons manage the money. Well, I have, are you, oh, you're a C, you have a CPA. Great. You're, you're a bookkeeper. Oh, you've had, you own your own business. Come on down. You can be our deacon. That doesn't, if you look in this list, same with last week for Brandon, right? It was a bunch of character. Isn't that interesting? This is a mistake that many, many churches make. This is not just a theoretical thing. If you've been in other churches, you've seen this. Often, the people that lead the church, it's like a a badge of honor, right? If you're a leading person in the community, well, by golly, you're going to be a leading person in the church. But God seems to think differently. He seems to focus on character. 
Again, I'm so thankful that he's spelled this out for us that we don't have to make it up. So look on page seven, you'll see the outline. We're answering this simple question, what must a deacon be? Three answers from this passage. Uh, One, he must be completely trustworthy. Two, tested and proved blameless. And three, he must manage his household well. Or let's look at that first one, completely trustworthy. All right, now depending on how you count, um, this is anywhere from 10 to 13 qualifications for the deacon. That's quite a lengthy list. Now I want, if you, let's just get to the second word. Look at verse 8. It says, deacons likewise. What's that talking about? Well, before we even get started, we realize that after the last passage, there's a lengthy list for elders, and it says deacons likewise. What we're going to find is, is that the qualifications for deacons are very, very similar to elders, with, with the exception of maybe teaching, right? So there's a very high bar in many churches. Additionally, people will say, well, here's the bar for elders, which is probably lower than it should be, and then here's the bar for deacons. But does Scripture do that? Do you see this huge difference that any old Joe can be a deacon? Let's look, let's look at this and see if that's what it, it says it's not at all. Um, there is a very high bar. And the other is just to notice as we look through the real absence of skills and competencies, um, just how it focuses on character traits. So let's look through these one by one and unpack why do we think this is? Why is a man of good character matter so much? To God. Okay, so let's get past the second word. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Dignified. You know, isn't it pretty quick after you meet someone, you know if they're dignified? I think it's pretty obvious, usually. If that's not a familiar word to you, um, kids, I just imagine the average, immature, non-Christian, middle school boy stuck in a grown-up body. Okay, that's basically undignified. It's true. There are a lot of men who are basically still stuck in middle school, and they don't let you interact with them, and you're like, this is not a very dignified person. This is not a mature person who carries himself with dignity. Okay, so deacons need to not be like that. They need to be dignified. Okay, then what what does he go after that? He says, not double-tongued. What does that mean? Well, there's two possible meanings. Double-tongued, it either means that they say one thing to one person and something different to someone else. That's a possibility. Or they say one thing and they do something different. Okay, so let's look at both of those. They both come up with the same result. They wouldn't make a good deacon. Okay, so say one thing to one person and someone else. Um, Kids, if you remember, uh, do you remember when we say the 10th commandments? Do not lie. Do you remember the memory clue for do not lie? Let's see. Five is not four. That's nine. The ninth commandment. See, these are real helpful. So the ninth commandment is do not lie. Remember when we preached on that, we talked about two good southern sins, um, gossip and um, flattery. Remember we talked about that? How to your face, we'll just say the sweetest things, the nicest things, and then behind your back, just shred you up, right? This is, this is, this is for many people, this is their way, right? That's being double-tongued, right? You're saying, you're presenting one way, and then behind closed doors, you say something very different. This is not what you want in a deacon. Part of being a deacon is you will have people pressing on you that all have contradictory views. And so if you say, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, that's great. And then over to you, well, yeah, that, you sound, that sounds good too, right? When you both contradict each other, right? You can't do that. You cannot be controlled by fear of man. This is a great sin of mine. It's been all my life. I'm much less so is fear of man. 
And so I must be willing to say what people don't want to hear. So a deacon must not be double-tongued. Must not just say what people want to hear. So that's one possibility. That's one uh, meaning of double-tongued. The other is say one thing, do something else. Now think back about Acts 6. A couple weeks ago, we looked at what's the role of a deacon. We looked at Acts 6. The elders had a problem. What was the problem? The Greek-speaking widows weren't getting their fair share of food. So the elders say, we're going to solve that. We're going to appoint seven men. We'll call these proto-deacons. Okay? They weren't called deacons yet, but they're basically what will later become the office of deacon. And so those seven men say, yep, aye, aye, sir, we'll take care of that problem. Okay, what if they're double-tongued and nothing gets fixed? What if they just go on and then, then the elders have a bigger problem, don't they? They would not have, remember it said, the whole reason the elders said, so that we could focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. No, they're not going to be doing that. They're going to be cleaning up the mess of those deacons that didn't do their job because they just said one thing and did something else. Kids, if you tell your parents, I will do something, do they have, can they have confidence that you'll do it? That's a tough one, isn't it? Can your parents have confidence that if, if you say, yes, I'll go clean my room, yes, I'll go do my homework, yes, I'll go empty the dishwasher, that they just have certainty, it will get done. That is to be double-tongued. All of us struggle with that, right? Don't you kids from a young age? Adults, have you ever had an employee or someone that you work with and you delegate to them? Hey, can you take care of this? But in your mind, you know, I have zero confidence it's going to get done. I know, I make a mental note, I need to double back and check. Hey, did you actually do, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I know. Could you please go do it now, right? To be double-tongued. An, a deacon must be a man of their word. Scripture says uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, it speaks of your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus once told a parable of two sons. Imagine this, you and your brother, okay? So one of you, dad says, go do something, and you say, no, I'm not doing it. But then later you change your mind and you go do it. Then the other son says, yes, sir, I'd be happy to do it. And then you never do it. And so Jesus is saying, now, which one really obeyed? But the reality is neither of them would make good deacons, right? A deacon needs to both say yes and follow through and follow through. So we cannot be double-tongued. All right, what else do we have on our list? So we go on. So verse 8 says, not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. Pretty clear what it's talking about. You can't drink too much. Now, what's wrong with getting drunk once in a while? Well, there is something wrong with it. It says it here. You lose not only uh, your response time, uh, your cognitive ability, decision-making, and driving, right? You can get DUI for that. But in all areas of life, a drunk man does not have his, or a woman does not have their full senses. They should not drink too much. Now, before you pat yourself on the back, because you don't struggle with being a drunkard, are there any other areas that you could lack self-control that you could just indulge in? Because that's what being a drunkard is, isn't it, right? You, you drink and, wow, this tastes good, and you just keep drinking and drinking and drinking until you're drunk. Is there anything else? Let me get personal. How about food? Is it possible to overindulge in food, to just eat until you feel sick and lack self-control? Yes. What about entertainment? Entertainment's great. Can you indulge to the point you're just blurry-eyed? See, there used to be binge was only used with drinking. You binge drink. Now we use that. We, we can binge eat. You can uh, binge on Netflix, right? We, you see the pattern, don't you? That we can just indulge over. and that, So part of the root issue is 
is a man self-controlled. Is a man self-controlled. A man who has no self-control is going to get himself in trouble, whether it's with alcohol most severely, but there are many other ways that we can lack self-control. The next one, it says, not greedy for dishonest gain. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, kids, remember when we talked about the Eighth Commandment? Show me the, how do you remember the Eighth Commandment? Kids, you remember? It's eight. Yep, I see some folks. Yeah, there you go. See, if like this, and this is bars. Don't steal, or you might have behind bars, okay? So Eighth Commandment is do not steal. We said when we talked about that, we said, this is just a review. See, what we're going to find is the Ten Commandments are all through Scripture, right? So do not steal. When we said whenever you break the Tenth Commandment, you also break the Tenth Commandment. Remember the Tenth Commandment? Remember the, how do you remember that, kids? you remember how you remember the Tenth Commandment? There we go. I see it. Right. So um, it's to covet or to be discontent, um, to covet what others have. So you covet what others have, and then you steal it, right? Then you break the Eighth Commandment. It says deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Greedy, the Tenth Commandment. Because if you're greedy, you're at much greater risk to steal. Who takes care of the money in the church? The deacons. We probably don't want them greedy for dishonest gain. We want them to be content with with what God gave them. How are we going to know that? How do you know if a man is greedy for dishonest gain? Well, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of being greedy? Well, being content and being generous. If you find a man who generously gives away what he has, he's probably not greedy for dishonest gain. So generosity. All right, it goes on. And now we have a little bit of shift. Look at verse 9. He says, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold to the mystery. Now, what does mystery mean? Usually we think of mystery, we think of something unknown. Well, in this context, it means something that was unknown, but now we know. It's talking about the gospel, right? Paul speaks in the same language, Romans 16. He says, my gospel and my preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, there it is that was kept secret for long ages, has now been disclosed. What was secret before is now disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all the nations. So he's saying the gospel in the Old Testament is there, but it's mysterious. Right? You're like, uh, I kind of get it. You get to the New Testament, it's just plain as day, right? Oh, I really get it. I'm a sinner. Jesus died on the cross, right? It's very obvious. So what is the implications of verse 9? He must hold to the mystery of the faith. Is this saying that deacons must be sound theologically? It is. Now, why would a deacon need to be sound theologically, have good theology? Why do you think? Think about that a second. Why must their theology? Well, here's a reason. They actually hold a position of authority. And so if their theology is a mess, well, likely over time, you're going to have people that follow after that, Right? And so all the leaders of the church need to have sound theology. This is very important. It's so important that when we do our training next year, everyone that you nominate, whether they're for elder or for deacon, we're going to train them all together. We're going to go through the same fundamentals of the faith because it is critically important that elders and deacons understand what we believe. Here, I'm going to read to you. Remember that blue book I showed you? Here's a a quote out of it. Here's one of the vowels that the deacons will take. So I will ask them this question, just like, so now notice the difference. You heard, this is a great Sunday to hear this. You heard the five vowels for membership. I want you to notice how different 
this value is than any of the ones that they agreed to, okay? This is the second question I'll ask them. This is for deacons, and the elders have a very similar one. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? That's referring to Westminster Confession and the shorter and longer catechisms. As containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. And do you further promise that if at any point you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of the system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, come make, come make known to the session the change that's taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vows? Do you realize what they're vowing to? They're saying, we agree with all the theology of the PCA. Because that is the theology of the PCA, is Westminster Larger and Short Catechism. See, you guys didn't agree to that when you joined the church. To join the church, you're simply saying, I'm a Christian, and I'll follow these leaders. And, and a couple other things, right? I'll, I'll support the church its worship and work, but nothing about theology, right? But to be a leader in the church, you're agreeing to the theology. You probably should know the theology if you're going to vow to it, right? And so that's what we teach. We teach the theology to both elders and deacons. Look there, this is so that they could actually fulfill verse 9. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Okay, so then we move on. And it brings us to our second point. Okay, there we go. Whew. You know, the growing of the greatest fears for pastors, the page is being out of order. But I think I'm at where I'm supposed to be. Um, second point, what must a deacon be? He must be tested and proved blameless. Tested and proved blameless. All right, look at verse 10. And let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Okay, we will test the elders and the deacons. After all that training, we'll test them. Make sure they actually know the theology that they're about to vow to. This is not what this is talking about, though. How do you test a man? How do you test a man? How do you know a man's character? Um, young girls, any single um, ladies in the congregation, um, I want you to think for a second. One day, you might hope to be married. If you do hope to be married, um, how are you going to test this man? You're going to entrust yourself to him, parents, if you have daughters? You two are thinking about this. How should you do? It should be like a written test. See how he does when dad polishes the gun? That's a common one. Does he wet his pants or not? Well, no, there's probably better ways to test a man's character. The same with deacons. How are we going to test a man's character? Here's one way. Over time, trials and stress have a great way of testing a man. Time, trials, and stress. If you wait long enough and you watch in enough situations, you'll see not only their public face, but also their private face. Our young girls, that's who you're marrying is the private face. That's who you'll spend the rest of your life with not the public face. How do they handle stress, trials, disappointments, failures, offenses, frustrations, pain, fears, uncertainties, lust, ethical ambiguities? The same is with deacons. If you wait long enough and you see a man in enough situations, you will begin to discover his true character. A deacon must be tested. My wife has been a great help to me in this. When I was a younger man, I was rather naive. I just thought that how a man presented was all he was. So I, I remember vividly, there was a man that I knew in our church, and this was a, a long way, far from here, and um, I thought he was a really nice guy until my wife informed me that he yelled at his wife. He was extremely harsh with her, and they, 
And she really did not have it. They didn't have a happy marriage. I was shocked. I just couldn't imagine this nice guy acting like that. He always smiled. He was so friendly to me. How could he be so different? Through the years, I've learned not everyone is how they present. People present one way, and they're very, very different when no one else is watching. What are you like behind closed doors? How do you speak to your wife and to your kids? What do you look at on the internet when no one else is watching? How do you treat your coworkers? Again, how do you test a man? Watch him in all situations. And over time, you'll begin to observe his character. Verse 10, it, it ends with, he must prove blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means beyond reproach, unaccusable, cannot be called to account. Many years ago, I, I was a government contractor, and I had to go through security clearance. Any of you that's ever done this process, they ask you a million questions. And I'm not exaggerating too much. They want to know about gambling habits and, and debt and all this stuff. Why do they care about all this stuff? Because they don't want you to be, be able to be blackmailed by anybody. Right? Unaccusable. Now, that's long expired, and it's a, a distant past, but I still remember that application. To be a deacon, you must be blameless. It must be men that there's not skeletons in the closet. You must be above reproach. All right, so speaking of daughters and testing potential son-in-laws, it brings us to our third point. What must a deacon be? He must manage his household well. Manage his household well. Probably the most difficult of all of these. All right, so look at verse 11. Now we have a little bit more controversy here. Verse 11, let me read it to you. It says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. All right, now there's a big controversy you might not know about here that wives in Greek can just as easily translate women. The pro, why, is that, why does anyone care? Well, because what some will say is that what Paul is actually introducing here is deaconesses, a whole new office. Okay, so look at it again. Here's how they read it. So we talk about deacons through verse 10, and then it says, women, meaning women deacons, likewise must be these things. Okay, is this what it means? So the PCA says no. Why? Why do we say this is not, this is, and your translation probably says wives because the translators say that um, women is not the best way to understand this. Let me give you, I can, there's not time to unpack this completely. Here's three quick reasons. One is, is if Paul was going to introduce a whole other office, he could have just, or he likely would have used another word. To use the most generic word for woman is probably not what he would do. He'd probably just say deaconess. He'd actually use a term. Right? We label overseers, we label deacons, you would probably make a label, okay? So it's not likely. A second reason is that it's, um, it's squished right here in the middle, right? So it, it's kind of odd. They'd be talking about deacons, 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 and then in one single verse, he would introduce this whole office and then jump back to deacons. Okay, that's a little bit odd, right? Just the layout of the passage. The third reason is that the exact same generic um, Greek word, um, and I hope I said Greek and not Hebrew. Um, it is Greek if I said it wrong. Anyway, Greek. Um, the, in verse 12, he says, the deacon must be husband of one, same generic word. Well, in that context, it's very obvious. We're talking about a wife there because he's the husband of a wife, okay? So in Scripture, when there's something less clear, you interpret it by what's more clear. Verse 12 is very clear. Likely verse 11, 
The same word, he's using it in the same way he's going to use it in the very next verse. Okay, so that's three reasons. If that's of interest to you, I'm happy to talk to you about it more. But the PCA and our church understands this to be talking about the wives of deacons. Okay, so now we have to understand, why does he say this? I, if you remember last week, there wasn't anything about the wives of elders. Why do we have this verse about the wives of deacons? One possible reason is, often, um, deacons, the work of mercy, it's a great place for a husband and wife to do it together, to care for a husband and wife who are in need, or sometimes just a woman who's in need, right? So it's very natural for a wife of a deacon to be involved in the work. Now, oftentimes, deacon work is very confidential stuff. You find out about what's happening and people's needs in their lives. If she's a gossip, what's the, what does it say about her? Their wives like must, must be dignified. Same thing about the deacons from before, not slanders. Can you imagine how problematic it is if you have a deacon's wife who's a slanderer? who gossips, who wants to go around and tell you, guess what I heard about so-and-so? Guess what so-and-so is going through? Ah, not so good for the church, right? It's dangerous anywhere, particularly in leadership. Not slanders. Sober-minded, of course. Sober, not drunk. But also beyond that, sober-minded, that they would be self-controlled, that their mind would be under control. Faithful in all things. Now, are you telling me that the Bible is saying that a wife could disqualify her husband? Absolutely. That's exactly what this is saying. A wife can disqualify her husband. So all of you women, the Bible cares not just about men having standards for being in leadership. They say your character matters too. You're a helpmate. Now, but we aren't asking. We aren't asking this man to run the children's ministry. So what if he doesn't? And this will come up in just a second as we look at managing his household. It matters. We aren't asking, we aren't ordaining her, we're just ordaining him. No, it matters. We see this implication in verse 11. Then he goes on, back to the deacon, verse 12. But deacons, each be husband of one wife. Does this mean a single man can't be a deacon? No. It means that any man who serves must be a one-woman man. Now, what in the world is a one-woman man? It's a man, if he's single, who's sexually pure. He's a one-woman man. He's not married yet, but he's saying, I'm, I'm saving myself for my future wife. He's a one-woman man. A married man should also be sexually pure. He also is a one-woman man, his wife. Right? This implies to very common things like pornography. Right? He's saving himself, even his mind, his eyes, for his wife. He's not looking at pornography. A husband of one wife. Here we get to the big kicker. Are you ready? He manages their children and his own household well. Every man should grimace when we read this. This is, in my opinion, this is probably the hardest two jobs known to man, being a husband and being a father. It just exposes us, exposes all our great, and I'm speaking for myself and you, exposes our greatest weaknesses. Does it not? I mean, you can be anything else at work. At home, we're just laid bare. If there's long enough, we, we are, how much contact time do you have with your spouse, with your kids? Right? They see the very worst of us. It says they must... Now, this is interesting. Remember, we started in the beginning of character. This is our one competency. What job experience must he have? What other work experience must he have? The home. Isn't that what he's saying? You must manage your household well if you're going to manage the household of God. If you have an actual Bible open, you can see verse 15. It says that. He calls it the household of God. You better manage your household before you manage God's household. That's the implication here. Manage his household well. 
Yeah, this is, this is a tough one. Is it not? I mean, you must be faithful over many years. I mean, anything else, you can just like, do it for a little while. Just hold your breath. I mean, you hold your breath for eight hours at work. Not eight years, 18 years, 28, 38, right? You've been married a long time. Eventually, our true colors will come out. We must manage our household well. Now, many kind of think of this, they think perfection's the standard, right? If that was the case, we'd have no elders or deacons, including Brandon and I. None of us would qualify if perfection's the standard. So what is the standard? I would, I would say to you, there is a difference between saying his kids are out of control and his kids are sinners and he's working with them and he's not perfect and they're not perfect, right? There is a difference between, haven't you seen a family and the kids are out of control and you're like, wow. Right? You know that. that. That family, that man should not be a deacon. And that should be an elder. It's the same standard is for them as well. What you end up with, when you try to pray perfectionism, is superficial legalism. Superficial legalism. Just, hey, just let's pretend. You've heard fake it till you make it? Not a good policy for elders and deacons. Don't just put your best foot forward. The actual idea here is actually put your worst foot forward. This is why these details get so into the weeds. The idea of this is that you would expose the very worst version of yourself and say, here I am. Can I serve? Do you think I qualify? This, is, this applies to all of you. And if you have a prayer triad, if you don't know what that is, ask me, I'll tell you later. If you, don't, if you have a prayer triad, do they know your worst sins? Mine does. I have a prayer triad. Your, your prayer triad should know your greatest struggles. This is the culture we're trying to, to establish in this church, that we would be a place where people are real. If you don't do this and you try to become an officer, you try to become an elder or a deacon, you end up with a house of cards. It's just waiting to demolish. And the church, there are many churches, many of you have been in churches. The whole church ends up collapsing because one man had a house of cards and finally it collapsed. Perfection is not our standard. Let me be very direct, if I haven't been direct enough yet. You are one person with one character. Who you are in your very worst moment is who you are. Let me say it again. Who you are in your very worst moment is who you are. See, we like to define ourselves by our best moments. And we hide those things even from ourselves. Put them behind our back and we don't want to look at them. Who we are is who we are at our worst moments. It's sobering, isn't it? It's very sobering. I want to tell you a brief story. Um, I decided at a certain point, my wife and I, that I wanted to go to seminary. I want to go into the ministry. So I went to the elders of my church, very similar to what some of you will do, those who are nominated. I said, I want to go to seminary. And they said, not so fast. Slow down, buddy. Let's, we'd like to pray with you. Let's talk about this. And finally, they came back to us and said, no. Those are two letters that nobody likes hearing. N-O. That was not fun. They said, hey, we love you. We know you love Jesus. I just ignored him and went to seminary anyway. And here I am. No. <laughs> no, we didn't. We said, okay. And we, we joked that we had one foot in the suitcase like, we were really, we, were, we had already come to seminary we wanted to go to and toured it and looked at it. 
They said, no, we don't, we don't think you're ready. We think it'd be good. Just slow down. Hey, serve some. Take some online classes from the seminary. Stick with us. Serve some more in the church. I'm so glad I did. You know it can be a good answer. Two years later, they said, oh, we think you're ready now. So we said, okay. And we went. No is hard. Have you ever seen the movie? Actually, I looked. It came out 30 years ago in 1993. Rudy. I love a good sports movie. So this is about this guy who wanted to play for Notre Dame. It was his dream. And if you haven't watched the movie, he's not built for this. When he's told by someone there, they say, let me get the quote right. You're five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you're hard, you hardly have a speck of athletic ability. Well, that's a pep talk, huh? But he said, I wish God would put in the heart of some of my players your heart. He had a fight. He just kept, he never gave up. He just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. Finally, he had to play a little bit. That should be our heart. That's my desire for all of you, particularly men, that you would have Rudy's heart, spiritually speaking. We'd say, I want to serve Jesus. Hey, here's, here's my worst sins. Here's the worst version of me. Do you think I qualify? Okay, maybe not now. Can I, how about next time? It was such a, a neat picture. I watched the preview again this morning. I hadn't seen the movie in a long time. And it was fun. That should be our heart. Not to be this pri- prideful either that, hey, I'm going to, with pretense, here's how I present. We just, we don't want that to be the culture of our church. For any of you, men, women, children, that we would be able to be honest. And then when you come, we're not, we don't, we're not perfect. We're still men in process, the leaders of the church. And even if we say, yes, we think you qualify, you're, we're still just joining our arms together to be a better father next year than we were last year, a better husband than we were last year. This is not a place for perfect people. It is a place for people who are tested. You know, all that I said there could be pretty discouraging, couldn't it? I do want to bring you some good news called the gospel. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says there was one man who had no private face. There was one man who was the same at home as he was at work. Same in the workshop when no one was looking, when he smashed his thumb, as any other moment. The man was Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He lived the perfect life, died because you fail. And you know you do. I do. That's the gospel. The gospel is that through him, you receive all his righteousness. He died to pay for my sins, and then you get. That's what gives you the freedom to lay yourself bare. Otherwise, none of you would ever do it. It would eat up your pride to say, here is the real me. Here's how I look when no one else is looking. The gospel enables that. I mean, otherwise, our church would be miserable. Can you imagine a church without the gospel and vulnerability? We have both, thankfully. We all have failed miserably, but Jesus completely kept every law, and now that's my identity. That's the reason I can stand before you today, is because of that identity. Not because I'm great, though God has taught me a lot. There's not time to tell you all the ways through the years that God has pressed me to grow me up that I would qualify for this job. I did not qualify as a much younger man. God, and so for you young men, God might put you through the ringer, it feels like at times. You're like, why in the world? Maybe God has plans for your life. He did for my life that I could stand here before you. He might have plans for your life, and he might put you through the ringer as you grow up some. But it is for your good. It will shape your character. 
I'm going to close with verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith. If you serve as a deacon, God rewards you. I'd love to reward you, but I'm a man of limited means. God, on the other hand, has not limited means and has all the resources in the world. He never lies. And so if he says, I'm going to reward you if you serve, you can probably trust. No, not probably. You can certainly trust that he will reward you. Serving him in any way, as a mother, as a child, as an elder, as a deacon, faithful service to him. Your labor, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We're going to end with that. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Serve the Lord wherever he has you. You don't know that he hasn't called you to be an elder or deacon? Be willing to do that. But wherever he's put you, it's not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, I I stand before you. Um, They don't know everything about me, but you do. You know I'm exposed before you. We all are exposed before you. There is no sin in this room that you do not know thoroughly. Lord, thank you that that is not our identity, but that Jesus Christ is my identity. I pray that, that everyone here, that if they don't have the identity of Christ, that they would know salvation and they would stop pretending with pretense that they have it all together. But they would join us here as a broken people who are walking by faith, trusting in what you say in your word. Thank you for giving us your word. If we're not for your word, we'd not know the gospel. Thank you for it. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up deacons and elders. Lord, as we begin this process, as even this week people pray about who might I nominate? Who would make a good elder or deacon? Who do I want to have over me? Lord, I pray that you would be stirring in people's hearts who to nominate and men willing to serve. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.